But at least when we were there in 2016, these were the main roads going east and west across the country, and they were unpaved. Not just unpaved, we didn't see a single sign in the country telling you where to go, like not even signs in Mongolian or Russian or anything, just no signs. A lot of times these would just be tracks through the sand and the grass. These are the main east-west roads across the country, and you're just trying to follow the tracks of whatever vehicle went ahead of you. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. Today's guest is a award-winning reporter. I, I actually had to stalk him a little bit on the internet, but I found out quite a bit of information. His own uh, radio show, if I remember, if I read it, reading that well, he's a producer on a on a daily national talk show called The Takeaway, and he spent five years as a radio news director in Oklahoma City. And he has reported from faraway places like Cuba, Haiti, Cambodia, and Iran. That's definitely something that I'm going to want to talk about. My guest is Scott Gurian. Welcome to Most Memorable Journey, Scott. Thank you so much. And uh, just to clarify, I, I worked in radio for many years, but now I mostly focus on my own podcast called Far That's From Home. The last, the next thing yep. that I wanted to say. Sure. Far From Home podcast, it's called, right? Yes, yes. I've been doing yes. it uh, about five, six years now. And I tell stories from my crazy adventures to kind of far-flung, off-the-beaten-path places around the world. And that's why you're here, because I want to hear some of those stories. And um, how long did you say? Five, six years? You're po- how many episodes? I, I started it, uh, I think, about... 75, 80 episodes now. Um, I started it in 2016 uh, because I was planning to go on this big, crazy road trip with my brother where we were going to drive in a little tiny car from the UK to Mongolia. (laughs) It was this event raising money for charity. It was called the Mongol Rally. And I figured this would be a perfect opportunity to create a podcast to document not just the journey itself, but even just all the preparations for, you know, to go into a trip like this, what kind of car you get, planning the visas and the vaccinations. Like it took many, many months to plan this journey. Um, And so I decided to document the whole thing, not just talking about it, but actually bringing a microphone along, recording it as we broke down on the side of the road and met people in foreign countries and had these crazy adventures. So people listen and they feel like they're traveling along with me. So you actually did that. You started in the UK and you ended up in Mongolia. Yes. Yeah. I went through, uh, I think, 18 countries over, uh, actually did it in about seven weeks, believe it or not, uh, 52 days, I think. And then... My friends flew home and I decided for some crazy reason to drive all the way back. Oh my um, God. What, so car did 20, you, uh, yep. what car did you buy? How big was the car? <laughs> it was not very big at all. It was a Nissan Micra. <laughs> oh a my God. Tiny hatchback. Yes. <laughs> um, that was part of the rules of the event, this event called the Mongol Rally. The, the organizers actually make you take a tiny car that's kind of unsuitable for the journey. That I, their thinking is that if you, you know, if you have a tiny older car, you'll, you know, break down inevitably and you'll be forced to interact with the locals. So you'll have more of an adventure, which is all well and good. I think makes sense um, if you break down two, three times, but we ended up broken down or at a mechanic in every country beginning in Bulgaria <laughs> with the exception really? of Kyrgyzstan. So, so how did that go? How did that, did you need parts or did you oh, need Oh my gosh. Pay? We brought some parts with us. I mean, my brother and I didn't really know much about car repairs or any anything like that. We we took a very basic mechanic class before we left, but you know, it's only scratching the surface. 
So we brought a few spare parts with us, some spare belts and different things. Um, but you can't bring every conceivable part for a car that have everything that could go wrong. And inevitably, things would go wrong that we didn't have the parts for. Um, and so we we had, from the very beginning, we had a lot of radiator issues. We would overheat in the middle of the desert in Iran. We had uh, like every possible you know problem went wrong with that car, culminating in us blowing our head gasket, which is a pretty crazy thing to go wrong with a car in the middle of Turkmenistan. And so we ended up getting stranded on the side of the road. Our, our friends, you know, attached a tow rope to our car, pulled us into the, the next town by a mechanic. Um, the, the authorities in Turkmenistan, you know, Turkmenistan's a hard country to even get a visa for. And it's only like, I think it was a five-day transit visa. You just have to drive across the country. They refused to extend our visa to fix the car. So we basically had to uh, get a tow truck, get the car towed like six hours to the border of Uzbekistan across the border, and then wait about a week for a new head gasket to get shipped from Dubai. So oh, lots of crazy stories. Yes. So even though they knew that your car had broken down, they wouldn't give you a few more days? No, nope. nope, nope, they would not budge, no. Um, and then in Uzbekistan, how long were you allowed to stay there, long enough to fix the car? Yes, yeah, I forget how long our visas last for, but it was long enough to, I think it was several weeks. Um, and it took just a week for the part to come um, once we ordered it. Um, so and, and then, you know, head gasket, if people know, I, I didn't know much about cars, but that's apparently one of the worst things that could go wrong with the car because it's a very simple, you know, cheap part, but they have to basically take apart the whole engine to get to it because it's buried underneath everything. And then they have to rebuild the whole engine and they never did a, you know, e- even under the best of circumstances, from what I understand, it's difficult to rebuild an engine properly. And these guys definitely did not do a great job. So that wasn't the end no, of our how? problems. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh my God. Where did you sleep? How did you, what what did you use as accommodation? Yeah, um, most of the people who take part in this event, the Mongol Rally, are kind of young kids in, you know, on their gap year or in their 20s or something. So they're just like sleeping in tents or crashing on the side of the road or something. And we did that a few times, but my brother and I were traveling with our friends, Rosie and Jane. Uh, these two kind of middle-aged British and Aussie women. And so they, you know, they like their creature comforts, <laughs> which is understandable. Um, and so we generally stayed at like hotels or Airbnbs or places like that. Um, so it was a little, not quite as rustic, um, though there were a few times we still had to camp out um, where we were in the middle of nowhere. Um, like in Tajikistan at one point, it was like three miles high. And we we clearly did not have, we weren't prepared for how cold it would be, even though it was the middle of the summer and the altitude. And, you know, several of us got some altitude sickness and that was not pleasant. But uh, yeah, most of the time we, we planned ahead and found like a hotel or something in the next town we were going to be going through. That's crazy. So you, even though you were prepared, you were not, you cannot, you can never really be a hundred percent prepared. Also, what, what uh, you know, the temp, what what concerns the temperature because that can change mm-hmm. very drastically in some places. Oh yeah, on a journey like this, even though it was the middle, we started out in uh, I think it was July and and ended up you know towards the end in September. And even though it was the middle of the summer, you know, yeah, we were sweating in the middle of the desert in like Turkmenistan, the Karakum Desert. It's like the hottest, driest desert in the world. And then we'd be three miles high in Tajikistan and worried about hypothermia. <laughs> and, you know, we were not prepared for that at all. Um, because it so, all yeah. looks flat on the map, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's hard to tell when you just look yeah. at a map. Um, it, it's interesting. People always say, oh, it's a small world. And, and it is. But 
in some you know senses, but there's giant stretches of the world between the big cities where most people never go. And in some yeah. senses, the world is actually very big. And you, you notice that when you're actually driving, you know, between these places. What was Iran like? My daughter traveled in Iran for six weeks in 2019. How did you experience Iran? It was very interesting. Um, of course, you know, as an American, there was a bit of trepidation going in, not so much for my brother and myself, but from our like family and friends and our, you know, father was very worried and saying, oh, they're going to be chanting death to America and all, you know, the people, the types of things, you know, people worry about when they just see things on the news or don't travel so much. Our experience was, it was of all the places I've traveled and you, I'm sure you've heard this before, friendliest people I've ever met anywhere. Uh, you know, people yeah. in Cuba were very friendly. Alaskans are very friendly, but you know, Iranians are just amazing. Like just this sense of Persian hospitality where you meet total strangers and within five, 10 minutes, you're having a chat and they're suddenly inviting you to their home, come for tea, come for dinner, meet their families. You know, they're so excited to practice their English. It just people are so incredibly friendly and curious about us. They had never met Americans before. Um, they, you know, had so many questions for us um, and they were just so excited. So that they, it was just a really fascinating place. Um, most of the places we were just kind of driving through on our journey, Iran was one of those places we spent a little bit more time, um, at least when we were there a few years ago in 2016. If you're an American, a Brit or a Canadian, you have to hire a tour guide in order to take you through. Um, in order to get a visa. Um, and But it really was just a tour guide. He wasn't like a government mind or anything like that. Um, and so he took us through and we visited some of the tourist sites um, and we you know, went to Tehran and Mashhad and some of these other cities. Um, and it was it just a fascinating country and I'd love to go back someday and spend some more time there. It's exactly what my daughter said. And uh, it, isn't it such a, just a shame that propaganda and the media or whatever you want to call it they sort of, they're there to make us hate each other, isn't it? You know, to, to yeah. s spread information that is not true. Because as you say, they are some of the friendliest people in the world. Mo very, very hospitable. Yeah. I, I mean, there you know, there are legitimate concerns about, you know, there are, I'm a journalist, there are fellow journalists who've been imprisoned there. For, yes. You know, not, yes. they're not yes. spies, they're actually journalists. And, you know, there yeah. are legitimate concerns. But if you're talking about just the average everyday interactions with, you know, person to person, you know, people are not their government. And there's a very big difference. Totally. And, totally. Uh, you know, yeah. But also when we go to a country, we have to adapt to the country. You know, you mm -hmm. cannot go to a country and then think that you can behave in any way you want. You need right. to find out what is, first of all, legal and also what is the custom in, in, in the place. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found you know, it's it's really hard when you're looking, you know, planning a trip or thinking about things from afar and you just see kind of the media coverage or you, you see, you know, it's it's very easy to be afraid and, and not mm -hmm. to be sure. And I found you just need to like speak to the locals like we before we, you know, uh, went to Iran, we actually as part of our trip, this was in this summer of 2016, and we ended up at the border to enter Turkey. This was six days after an attempted coup. <laughs> and it was just bad oh, yeah, timing. I remember that. Remember <laughs> that, yeah. Um, yes. And so we were kind of scrambling at the last minute. Is it safe to go? Can we, you know, we're trying to, you know, we're just seeing stuff on the news and we're, you know, wondering. But then we reached out, we were, you know, able to talk to friends of friends who were there on the ground. And we asked them, well, what do you think? Is it, would it be safe for we to, us to go there? What is the situation there right now? And I feel like that's always, you know, the best thing to do because it's hard to tell from afar. But if you talk to people on the ground, like if the locals say it's not safe, I'm going to trust them. Like I'll listen to what they yeah, say. Yeah, I would yes. say so. 
you were saying um, Uzbek, Turk, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan. What's the sequence? So we, okay, so we went Southeast across Europe and then we drove across Turkey and then Iran Mm-hmm. And then crossed the border into Turkmenistan and then Uzbekistan, Tajikistan through the mountains. We went on the Pamir Highway, which is supposed to be one of the craziest roads in the world. It's a very rocky, kind of unpaved road right across uh, the border from Afghanistan, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. We could wave to people across the river in Afghanistan, but we felt safe on our side, you know. So Tajikistan and then Kyrgyzstan and then Kazakhstan. So we're kind of going around China because it's very difficult to drive through China. You have to like have a, a guide and you apparently have to like get a driver's license to drive through China. Apparently it's really expensive and difficult. So we're driving around China. Uh, we had to go through a little bit of Russia and then into Mongolia. Um, and then we drove all the way across Mongolia. And then the the finish line of this event was Ulan Ude in Siberia, um, just north of Mongolia. And then I decided to drive back across Siberia. What was was Mongolia like? It's uh, lots of wide open spaces, beautiful landscape. It has the lowest population density of any country in the world. So we'd go, you know, sometimes hours without seeing another person. Um, Just beautiful landscapes, mostly unpaved roads. It's funny, if you look at a map of the country of Mongolia, you'll see, you know, like two big lines going across the country, one in the south, one in the north. And you'd assume they're, okay, maybe not highways, but at least paved roads. And I, I don't know, I think it might be paved now. I haven't heard. But at least when we were there in 2016, these were the main roads going east and west across the country. And they were unpaved, not just unpaved. Like sometimes, I mean, there's not even, we didn't see a single sign in the country telling you where to go. Like not even signs in Mongolian or Russian or anything, just no signs. Um, a lot of times these would just be tracks through the sand and the grass. These are the main east-west roads across the country. And oh you're just trying God. to follow the tracks of whatever vehicle went ahead of you. And it was very easy to get lost. You know, there's GPS doesn't work, not just because there's no cell service, but but the country just wasn't even mapped that well, even when we were, had satellite GPS and everything. You know, some inevitably there, you know, the road would just like, or the path would just like split three different ways, but there'd be one line on the map or the map would show it splitting several different ways, but you'd only see one path ahead of you. And it's like, where are we supposed to go? And we ended up get, getting horribly lost one day. And, uh, there's these river crossings, you know, you're driving along and then there's this little stream you have to drive across, which we have this little tiny car, which really isn't capable of going in deep water. And uh, we got caught one day, you know, tr- going across one of these little rivers. And then we saw another, you know, on the map c- coming up ahead and we were trying to avoid it. And we made the stupid decision. We thought, oh, there's this other little path that's veering off to the right and we could just go there and kind of circumvent this river and not have to deal with it again. And it'll join back up to the main path later on which is all well and good if you're on flat terrain, but it was kind of hilly here. And our little tiny car does not have a lot of horsepower for making it up steep hills. And we managed, somehow managed to make it up, you know, the first couple of hills. And after that, we're like, we can't turn around because there's no way our car is going to make it back up the way we came. And to make a long story short, we ended up getting stranded, both of our cars at the bottom of this like canyon, this like rocky ravine. And we couldn't just could not get out either back the way we came or ahead. There were these big rocks ahead. And we tried putting the floor mats under the wheels to get traction. We tried everything. And we ended up having to send a... There's no one around at all for miles and miles. We walked to the top of the hill, nothing. And we ended up having to send a text by satellite to a friend back in the UK who in turn reached out to the American and British embassies in in Ulaanbaatar, the, the capital of Mongolia, and the other side of the country. And they had to send teams of people from the Mongolian National Emergency Management Agency to come rescue us. 
Oh my God. And what did, did, did they tell you off? Did they tell they, you that? No, they, I mean, they hardly spoke English, but they, they were very friendly. They, I'm sure, you know, they, they were glad to help us. They, they spent so much time searching around for us because our GPS coordinates didn't match their coordinates or something. So they spent hours driving around. They sent out one team that couldn't find us and they sent out another team. And and they spent so much time searching for us. They were running out of gas. We had to give them some oh of our God. gas. <laughs> and uh, they finally got us back to the main road. I did several episodes documenting this whole experience um, uh, in my first season. But they uh, they finally got us back to the main road and uh, refused to take any money or anything. We just gave them some peanuts and water. That was it. We later, when we went to Mongolia's capital, we we met with the folks at the American embassy. They were you know really fascinated to hear our story. Um, apparently, uh, a, a few months later, they actually sent us a photo of the American ambassador to Mongolia prevent, uh, presenting a certificate of appreciation to the head of the Mongolian National Emergency Management Agency for rescuing us because we were apparently we rescued the first. rescued you guys. <laughs> yes, we were apparently the first American drivers they'd ever rescued. So we we made history and we caused an international incident. Unbelievable. And since your podcast is called far from home. I think at that moment you felt even further from home. Than- <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Far. Yeah. There, there's this um, quote by the travel writer, uh, Tim Cahill. He, he says, uh, an adventure is simply physical and emotional discomfort recalled in tranquility. And that's kind of, you know, the situation, like you're, you end up in these situations and, and you're like, where, what have I gotten myself into? And I wish I could just be home in my comfortable bed sleeping. And, you know, it's just like, like stressful. You cry. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and, but all these crazy, you know, adventures leave you with great stories to tell afterwards. Like, you know, you're the life of the party well, at, at the bar or whatever. Yes. 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 Absolutely. And um, now out of all this, I mean, you must have felt though when you were in that in that canyon that you were talking about. Like, did you have a little fear? Did you think because you would have eventually probably run out of food and and yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm an eternal optimist, so I always okay. I, I'd never been in a situation quite like that. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I figured I knew that. Thankfully, we had these satellite communication devices that we brought, you know, just in case of emergency. So we knew there was some way to reach the outside world. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, you know, we had some food, or we had a few days worth of food. We had warm or enough warm clothing there. So yeah, we knew it was going to be, you know, it was going to take a little while, but I don't know. I, I think some of our, our friends we were traveling with got more worried. I, I, I feel like my brother and I stayed somewhat calm, but I don't know. I just had hope that and, and faith that, you know, we would get rescued, that something would happen. Now, obviously, if it had continued longer than it did, then I probably would have gotten increasingly worried. Yeah, but I think what you said before is, um, you know, being an eternal optimist and yeah. understanding, always believe that everything is going to turn out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's I, and, and once you go through an experience like this, it gives you more confidence for the future. Oh, yeah. I think you're like, I, I handle that. I can handle it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will never forget. I did a a winter season in Tunisia when I was 22 and a half. I was very young and I was on my own in a very big house and I had a car and I got used to get lost. I actually didn't find my house. I dropped off the tour guide I was replacing at the airport and I went back to Hamamid and I couldn't find my house because she had been driving all the time and I hadn't paid attention. I had to go and ask somebody where I live. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but um, you know, this season was so difficult that after that, everything was easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's this kind of, like you say, when you have had a really, really difficult trip, 
nothing can nothing can really shock you anymore after that. Right, right. It all but gives you, you confidence. You were saying that you drove back. Yeah, I for some crazy reason decided to drive all the way back. I I figured I was all the way, you know, in Siberia and like when am I ever going to be in that part of the world again? Um and I wanted to continue gathering more stories for my podcast, so my brother and our friends actually had to, you know, fly home. Um, but I had another friend, uh, my friend Donna, who was house sitting in Europe, and she flew out to meet me. And, and together, the two of us drove back. Not not the same way I came through Central Asia, but more kind of across Siberia, which ended up, you know, not being the most interesting place. I don't know what I was expecting, but um, I did get to go to Tuva and took a Tuvan throat singing lesson, which was fascinating. I did an episode about that. That's not a place very many people go. It's way out of the way. Um, it was like twelve hour drive each way wow, <laughs> to get there off the main amazing. path. That was really cool, and to see their culture. It's a part of Russia, but it's it's almost the, the people kind of look almost like Mongolian. They have their own language and culture and everything and music. So that was really fascinating. Got to go to Ukraine and, and Chernobyl, the eeriest, most fascinating place I've ever been to. Glad I was I went when I did. You know, so it, yeah, the trip back was still worthwhile. And like I said, it's a part of the world that most people never get to go to. So I'm I'm glad I did. How close did you get to Chernobyl? Oh, I, oh, you went, you go right there. They have tours. You can, you wander through abandoned buildings and everything. Like, uh, you're, I mean, technically they're not supposed to take you in the buildings, but all the, all the tours do. Um, yeah, or at yeah, least they yeah. did. Um, yeah. and so you're, you're going through this town that was abandoned in the course of a few hours in 1986 and people have never been allowed back. And so you still see calendars hanging on the wall oh in 1986. God. And, you know, yeah. they we're going through like a nursery with the little beds where the kids slept. And it's very sad. And it's like a time capsule, really, you know, and seeing, you know, the community center with the Olympic swimming pool with weeds growing in it and the, the abandoned amusement park with, a, you know, a Ferris wheel and bumper cars, you know, all overgrown. It's just very eerie and odd, but, you know, most fascinating place I've ever been. Um, really interesting. So people do tours. Obviously, nobody wants to go back there to live, or you, you it's not, mm-hmm. it, it would be unhealthy to go back there and, and live. But people who organize tours to go through it. Yeah, there were, um, don't quote me on this, but I think at the time we went in 2016, I think they said there were about 15, 20,000 people a year who came on tours there from, you know, it's like a day trip from Kiev. Uh, they'll take you in a bus there. And serve you lunch. You could also go on a longer tour, like overnight, to you know see more places. There are actually some older people who never left, who not right in the most dangerous area, but on some of the kind of the perimeter rings of the exclusion zone, who still live there um, and grow their vegetables and everything. They're up there in years now, and once they die, they're not going to allow anyone else, you know, their descendants or you know anyone oh, to come. That is um, fascinating. Yeah, and somehow they've managed to be okay and not develop all kinds of cancers and everything, which you'd think they would. But yeah, no, you can you can go on these tours there. And apparently, you know, since this Chernobyl uh, film came out on HBO a few years ago, it became even more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, now I'm sure tours aren't happening. But uh, like I said, so it's one of these places I'm really glad I went when I did because, of course, things have changed in Ukraine. Yes, of course, of course. So you went there at the right time. So was yeah. it the Nissan Micra that you drove back to the UK or was it that yeah. car? Oh. Uh, not this. I actually drove back our friend's car. So it, it was my brother and myself in one Micra and our friends had a second Nissan Micra. Okay. And our, our car had all the problems. And so it, at the end, we just 
drove it to a railhead in Russia and you can't, you can't just abandon it there because, you know, for import duties and everything. So they have to ship it back to the EU. So the the organizers of this whole event arranged for these cars. If you didn't want to keep them and drive them back, they'd ship them by rail back to, I think they went to Latvia and then they sent them to a junkyard there. But our friend, our friend's car was also a Nissan Micra, but it was way better than ours and didn't have all the problems ours did. So I actually drove their car back. Yeah. So you drove it back to the UK. Yep. Mm-hmm. We um, the, the way back, like I said, went across Siberia, Chernobyl, across Poland, uh, stayed with a friend in Berlin, and then went to Amsterdam and then put it on the ferry across the channel uh, back to the UK. Yep. So out of this, I mean, this is a long, how long did that take you, all of that? The whole trip. So going there was about seven weeks. Um, going back, I don't remember, maybe another couple months or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the whole trip was, I think, three, four months, something like that. Yeah. So out of it all, what what impressed you most? Oh man, so many <laughs> stories, so many memories. I mean, I, you know, it's like the, it's like when people ask you when you travel a lot, what is your favorite country? In yeah. Africa, you, you can't answer that question. But yeah. you know, the thing about this trip is that we were just doing a lot of driving. And it, I I I mean, I love that we got to see so many places, but I wish if I ever did a trip like this again. Yeah, and it was, you know, a long trip for most, you know, Americans who get such short vacation time. Like usually they go on these whirlwind tours and they try to hit up well tons of a dozen European countries in a weekend or whatever, which is ridiculous. So yeah, it was a somewhat long trip, but considering how much ground we covered and how many countries we went to, it was actually very quick. And so there were so many places that we just drove through that, you know, we just got to see out the car window and I wish we had had more time to stop at a more leisurely pace and explore. So, So there's so many places on my list that it was like, oh, that looks really interesting. I really want to go back someday and see more of it. Um, like the whole deal with Turkey, like I said, it was just after an attempted coup. So we were just being extra cautious. We, after speaking to people on the ground and everything, we realized, okay, we, first of all, we don't have a lot of other options with our visas and our time and everything to go around Turkey, but also according to what people said, it seems like it'll be okay, but just to be extra safe, we purposely, uh, we, we mostly just drove right through Turkey. We avoided Istanbul and Ankara. We went to Cappadocia, which is amazing. Really cool. You know, so that was really cool though. I'd love to go back and spend some more time, but I still, have been to Istanbul. Like that was on my list. I really want to go there. And I've heard it's such a cool place. And so I didn't get to see that, but I did really like Turkey, the the little bit that we saw and uh, the food was incredible. I think probably the best food we had in our whole trip. So I really liked Turkey. Like I said, Iran was just a fascinating place. I'd love to go back and spend some more time. Tajikistan, just the landscape in the mountains along the Pamir highway is just incredible. Um, so that was gorgeous. And Dushanbe, the capital of Tajikistan, seemed like kind of an interesting city. I don't know. Other people tell me it's not that fascinating, but a very kind of leafy and green. And I'd love to to go back and maybe explore at some point, just so I feel like I know it a little bit more. Um, so yeah, there's a the well, lot of places I'd like to see. You'll just have to go back. When I was reading your, in, or doing the intro, reading your um, presentation, Cuba, you spent time in Cuba. How long did you stay in Cuba? Yeah, not very long. Uh, my brother and I—that's actually where we met Rosie, who who invited us to go on the, the Mongol rally. We, uh, my brother and I, um, so to kind of rewind, 
my brother and I would, for a while, we were like taking a big trip every year, like over Christmas and New Year's, because uh, we didn't have a lot of close family in the area. And we figured we'd go somewhere interesting instead of just sitting around by ourselves making Christmas dinner. So uh, one year we went to Thailand and Cambodia. We went to Alaska one year. We, we went, you know, all different places. And one particular year, we decided to go to Cuba. And we don't usually do like tour groups, but there we decided we would just the logistics of getting around, we figured it would be a little bit easier. And so it was, I guess it was probably, uh, I think it was like 10 days or so. And so we, we saw most of, we didn't get to the Eastern end of the Island, but all the West and we, you know, we saw Havana and a lot of the cities and Cienfuegos and Vinales. And, you know, we saw uh, Bay of Pigs Museum, which is incredibly fascinating, total, total propaganda, government propaganda, but it's really interesting to see from their perspective, you know, a tiny little museum, but just, you know, the exhibits about the imperialist American pigs and, you know, the, the how they wage war against the Cubans. And I, I, I love seeing, you know, different perspectives from different places. And Vinales on the far western end of the island, uh, the agricultural area where they grow all the tobacco leaves for the cigars and had the best pina colada I know I'm ever going to have in my life. It was just so fresh and drinking it. I was like, I'm never, all pina coladas after this are going to be disappointing because this is so good. So that was really cool. I will say, I mean, Cuba is definitely very rough around the edges and it's, I think I wouldn't go back there as a tourist, but I would definitely go back as a journalist. Um, cause there, again, there's so many fascinating stories and I'd really love to spend more time there. You went to two places that normally American citizens don't usually go that much, which is, which is Iran and Cuba. Mm-hmm. Do, do you easily, how do you, do you get a visa easily to go to Cuba and to Iran as an American? Cuba's pretty easy, actually. Now um, you, is, you, but it wasn't always. Yeah. Well, I mean, when we went, that's after Obama had started opening things up yeah. and before Trump yeah. kind of closed them down again. But yes. um, it, it's a little difficult to go if it's like direct, there's direct flights from Miami, but then you have to go as part of like a, a particular approved tour or something. But otherwise you can fly through, I think we flew through Mexico and then came back through the Bahamas, just connecting flights. And uh, you, we actually went legally um, because you just, you know, cause I was there, I was a journalist, I was doing some reporting and my brother was a photographer. And so you just, on the way back into the U S um, if I mean, I guess you could not tell them, but we did, we, we adopted to do it legally. And so we did tell them, you know, when we got back through us immigration and we, you just present them with an itinerary. This was what we did every day. Um, we were there for these purposes and you just explain they, the U S authorities, technically they, they just don't want you going there on vacation, like hanging out on a beach. They, if you're going there for work or something, then mm-hmm. they're, they're fine with that. Yeah. So, so Cuba was relatively easy. Um, Iran, uh, it's again, it, the U S government, I think doesn't have any restrictions on Americans going to Iran, though they would advise you not to go, um, from the perspective of the Iranians, uh, they just, um, it's a little bit difficult to, you know, get a visa. Like I said, you have to have a tour guide if you're an American, a Brit or Canadian, um, so you have to go through a tour agency to get, I think they call it like a letter of invitation, um, to get a visa. And then it's a little complicated. They make you like submit a copy of your resume and like they, you know, ask what your purpose of your visit is and why you're going and all of that. So it was a little more complicated, but, um, but not that difficult. Turkmenistan, of course, was also very difficult. Not many people go there. 
And uh, same thing. The only way to go there is either to have a tour guide or to have a transit visa like we had, which just lets you drive, gives you, I think, five days to drive across the country in a straight line, ex- enter at one border, exit the other. So that was very restricted yeah. as well. So, I mean, I, normally I start my podcast episodes by asking when you, when were you on a plane for the first time? I was, I wanted to ask you now, wait, how did the travel box start? Where, where did it bite you? Yeah. I mean, I guess when I was on a plane for the first time, I was probably on a kid going to Disney world, okay. um, but that's, I wouldn't say that definitely was not the start of my travel bug. Um, it's interesting actually, because I feel like I wasn't that adventurous for many years. Like, I mean, in some senses I, I was, I mean, my, my brother and I were raised by our mother who, who always, instilled like a natural curiosity in us to, you know, try new foods and learn new things. And so I I feel like I'm a lifelong learner. I'm always curious about things. And she instilled that in us, but not so much from the travel part of it. Um, I mean, we did, uh, she got us into scuba diving. And so we went around the Caribbean, like scuba diving. Aside from that, we didn't like travel to a lot of interesting places so much as a kid. And it's weird. I actually wasn't that adventurous growing up um, in terms of travel. Like, I, I feel like my mom had to like twist my arm to do like the Spanish exchange in high school and go to go to Mexico. And like, I'm, I'm really glad I did in retrospect, but it just wasn't something I was I had thought to be interested in. And I didn't do like a study abroad in college, which I, I'm really sorry now that I didn't do that. I, I just, my, my college um, actually owns a castle in the Netherlands and I could have spent the semester there. And I just the oh, thought wow. never occurred to me. Yeah, I don't know why. But I think when it really started, when the bug hit me was during my, it was either my junior or I think it was my senior year of college where during my spring break, uh, you know, a lot of Americans during their spring break, they'll go to Mexico to like Cancun or whatever. But I went to Mexico over my spring break, but not where most American college kids would go. I actually had some friends who were filmmakers um, who were following, this was like in 2000, I think, um, they were following the Zapatista in, Indians, this like rebel indigenous tribe in Mexico, who were doing this uh, march for indigenous dignity on the, the Zocalo, the capital in Mexico City. They were having this caravan. It was like several weeks. They were driving all over the country of Mexico where, you know, along the way, other indigenous groups would join them in this caravan. And in the end, they finally descended on the Zocalo in Mexico City. And there were like two or 300,000 people for this giant protest for, you know, calling for indigenous rights there. And so during my, it just so happened to line up with my spring break from college. And so I flew down there and was totally in over my head. I had never like traveled by myself to a foreign country. I don't think, didn't know what I was doing. Uh, this is, you know, the age before, you know, smartphones and everything. So I like rented a cell phone at the airport. You know, when I returned at the end of the week, I had like a $2,000 cell phone bill. Oh, no. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing and, you know, didn't speak very much Spanish. And, but somehow managed to, I had like the rough itinerary for where this group was going to be different days. And so I just like, took a bus to the capital of this Mexican state and then just asked people, do you know where the Zapatistas are? And, you know, managed to finally find them. And my friends, the filmmakers saw me there and like, how in the world did you find us in this little tiny shanty town <laughs> in the middle of nowhere? And so I just spent the next week, like in this school bus, like traveling around with them. It was just the m- most amazing, incredible thing I'd ever done. 
And, uh, you know, after I went through that, I was like, I want to be like a foreign correspondent. I want to live abroad. I want to do more of this kind of thing. This is just incredible. Like when I think back to all of my experiences, you know, I've been worked in public radio for many years, been a journalist, but the most interesting, memorable experiences have always been when I've been abroad, you know, learning mm-hmm. about different cultures, experiencing how things work in a different part of the world. Um, and so I've, I've, that's, that's my passion. That's really, you know, I was working as you mentioned at the beginning for many years in public radio, just helping produce like a daily national talk show in New York and, you know, just doing domestic reporting. But at a certain point I thought, okay, I really want to leave all this behind. I I just want to do my own thing, go abroad and tell the kind of stories that I want to tell. And so that's been my focus ever since. That's fantastic. And I think, One thing that I always say when you start traveling and when you start going around on your own, when you start meeting locals and speaking to people, you actually realize that we're all the same people all over the world with the same needs. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's my biggest takeaway, I think, from all my travels, like despite whatever political or cultural or religious differences people have that we're all far more alike than we are different. Um, and yeah, it, the world's, you know, people think it, in some senses it could be a big scary place, but it just average everyday people and interactions you have, if you're broken down at the side of the road, if you you're totally lost and need directions, whatever it is, even if you don't speak the language, like you'll figure out how to communicate, whether it's through Google translate or by drawing, you know, pictures in the dirt or on the back of the dirty windshield on the car. Like we, you managed to figure it out and people uh, by and large have been incredibly helpful in all these sorts of circumstances. Like you're just human beings and people are, people are for the most people. part willing to help each other. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. So what's in the pipeline? What's next? So uh, I'm just slowly kind of venturing out, coming out of COVID here. There were a few years where I did, I was being super cautious, didn't do a lot of traveling. Um, but uh, then a few months ago, was invited to a friend's wedding in the Netherlands and then visited Switzerland for the first time, visited another friend. A few months ago, uh, I ventured out, I was in Thailand for about a month, uh, went to a conference and then actually went to, uh, did a story about a film festival in a refugee camp in the middle of the Sahara Desert in Algeria, which was really interesting. Now that um, is adventurous. Yes, yeah, I'd never been in North Africa before and Algeria is not a place many people go. So that that was really fascinating. Coming up, uh not a lot just yet, but I, I actually uh going to a, a radio uh, podcasting conference in Belgium um at the end of May and then something in Amsterdam. Um, and I figured if I'm flying across the ocean, I, I'd like to spend some more time to make it worthwhile. So I'm looking in, I'm, I'm just slowly starting to get into house sitting now to spend more time abroad, more, you know, affordably. Um, and I, I'm a big fan of slow travel. I, I don't like these whirlwind tours. I like to spend a lot of time in a place to really get to know it well. So, uh, looking for some other opportunities right now in Europe, I actually have a friend who's an exiled Russian journalist who's now living in Latvia. He invited me to come visit him and we were talking about maybe partnering on, doing some reporting maybe at the Poland-Ukraine border or something. Um, so looking into various possibilities. And then uh, and then later on in the year, my brother's actually getting married down in Oaxaca, Mexico. So hoping to spend some time down there. I, I hear it's lovely. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's lots of plans. And you also have to come and visit me in Cyprus. You, yeah. You mentioned to. that you haven't been here. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm far in the Eastern Mediterranean. So from here... Many countries are very close. It's like a, an, a, an hour's flight to Cairo. It's 20 minutes to Beirut, 40, wow. minutes, 40 minutes to Amman, and like 45 minutes to Tel Aviv. We're really it's in the 
far corner of the eastern Mediterranean. So that's uh, mm. as you said that you have you don't know the Middle East well. So that's no. an opportunity. Yeah. We're coming to the end, Scott. I want you to encourage the people who are listening to us because you said that you were a slow starter. You didn't do things that kids normally do. But then once you did, you realize how much fun it is. So we need to tell people to travel. Yeah, I I, I think everyone, you know, and everyone, people, different people have their different comfort levels. And some people might just feel most comfortable on a cruise ship as opposed to venturing to Iran or somewhere. And I get that. That's fine. Yes. But I'd really encourage everyone to, uh, and maybe it's not travel, maybe it's trying some new food or something, but just kind of try to little by little kind of venture out of your comfort zone, try something new, try some new passion or activity or something. Um, Cause you, you never know what it might be something you love doing, or it might be something you hate, but it, you don't know till you try it. And I just feel like we're all better people once we have more life experiences <laughs> And I, you know, I feel like I, I'm definitely a better person. I have so many stories to tell. I feel like, you know, my life is more interesting just because I've had all these experiences. So maybe it's it's not some big, crazy adventure like I took driving to Mongolia, but maybe it's just like ordering the spicy, you know, dish on the menu at your local Thai restaurant or whatever it is. I just encourage people to like, even if it's taking baby steps to like tr- constantly kind of try something new that you've never tried before before if especially if someone gives you some offer or they're like hey do you want to do this like force yourself to say yes to like you know jump at these opportunities um to you know test things out um like i said it, it might not be something you like but you don't know until you try it absolutely that is i think the perfect way to end this episode we're going to put uh, links to far from home in the show notes so um you can hear the detailed stories of the trip from London to Mongolia on Far From Home. And uh, Scott Gurian, thank you so much for being on Most Memorable Journeys today. Thank you so much. I enjoyed being with you. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.